Paul is simply arguing that the very nature of law itself is designed for those whose natural tendency is to want to break it. That's why we have laws. If everyone obeyed the speed limit, there would be no need for speed limit laws with enforcement. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working in a study of the book of Jonah, and today Dr. Brogi continues his message in Jonah chapter 3. We have seen Jonah has seen a great revival in Nineveh, not because of his own message, but God's. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he examines the relationship between the Word of God and the Spirit of God when it comes to salvation. So just as in physical birth there are two parents, there are two parents in spiritual birth. Follow with me now. On the one hand, you are born again by the Spirit of God. On the other hand, you are born again by the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion. And the degree to which you believe that will be the degree to which you use Scripture. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There have been countless occasions where I've encountered someone and you can just tell they're not getting, it's not clicking. I've just taken the scripture there in my office and I've read more scripture. And it's like the blinders came off. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Every once in a while someone says, well, I want to live my life in such a way so that people can see their need to be saved. That's not how they're going to be saved. Now, you through your testimony, maybe you can share how God answered prayer, something he's done for you, how he's blessed you. That may give you a platform, but your life can convert no one. The word of God brought together by the spirit of God is what brings about supernatural conception. And that has been true in every age. No one has ever been made right with God apart from Scripture. Even before the first verse of Scripture was penned by Moses, God spoke through dreams and visions in many portions and in many ways. And so Abel, who's the first prophet, preached the revelation that God had already given. And so he preached the need to be made right in faith. And so Peter continues. He quotes Isaiah. Notice, for all flesh is like grass... In all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Everything in it has the seeds of decay. You bring your wife some beautiful flowers, within a few days they're dead. But God's word is incorruptible, imperishable seed. And so the psalmist says, forever, O Lord, your word, your word is, is severed in heaven. Now, people have made fun of it. They've scorned it. They've mocked it. They've tried to distort it. They're making in these United States of America laws against the Scripture. But it is still the imperishable, incorruptible Word of God. Diocletian, the famous Roman emperor who hated Christians, who hated the Bible, sought to gather every scroll and piece of papyri in the empire. There are no codexes books then. It was all in scrolls and papyri. And to have the Bible burned. And when he had thought he had burned the last scroll, he erected a monument with these words, the name of Christ is extinguished. Anyone have a Bible here today? Hold it up high. 
I think old Diocletian was wrong, don't you? They can make laws against it. People can ridicule it. Cults try to add to it. Liberals twist the word of God to their own destruction. The humanists of our day are ignoring it. But it is nonetheless the incorruptible, imperishable word of God. And when you're convinced of that, as you speak to people about the Lord, you will be quick to use Holy Scripture in that process, for it is God's divine seed. You know why some of us have never seen anyone to come to know Christ? Because we think our testimony has some power in it. It has no power but to give you a platform. People aren't converted by your testimony. Or you have been convinced by the evil one because of the evil in our day that people just aren't interested anymore. There are people every week who come here who are looking for answers. We just saw a young woman come down front in the last service. She came to meet the pastor, still trying to process it, clearly not a believer, called for an appointment, spent an hour with her on the phone. She received Christ as Lord. People are interested. People are interested. Now, think about the disciples. What was their perception of the Samaritans? Listen to what Jesus said. Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. The disciples needed spiritual vision. They needed eyes to see that the fields were white onto harvest. Remember, they went into town to get food. They had to cross paths with the Samaritan woman along the way. And when they were in town collecting food, they didn't share the gospel with those people. They come back. She's marvelously converted. She goes back, brings the whole town. And then even apart from her testimony, people were saved. And Jesus said, already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he that sows, in this case, John the Baptist, who had been preaching the gospel in this area, he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Look, you may sow seed and someone else may come alongside through your faithfulness to sow a truth of the word of God that's imperishable seed and they later, later harvest it. But you are to be faithful in this process that God has called us to. Now think about old Nineveh. Think about the man on the ship. Nobody, nobody on the ship could be converted with Jonah down in the hold of that ship. It's not until we take the seed and we, be, we begin to sow it that it can have its influence. Now back here, Jonah 1 verse 2. He was told, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. God told Jonah what Jesus told us. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We are to preach like Jonah did, the coming work of the Messiah for us to pass work, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Jesus said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then he adds, you are witnesses of these things to 500 people standing on that hilltop. 
That's what Jonah did. He witnessed, he preached. That's what we are to do. Okay, very quickly. Now the effects from the revival. We've talked about the extent of the revival, namely everyone in Nineveh. We've examined the means to it, faith in Christ, belief in the living God. We spoke about the method for it, the sowing, the sharing, the preaching of God's seed. Fourth and finally, the effects, the effects from this revival. I want you to notice here that there's a group of people who are totally changed. Because the people in Nineveh believe in God, again at the end of verse five, they called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and put on the ashes. I mean, we're talking here about some serious repentance. The word spread to every quarter of greater Nineveh, and these outward symbols were inward realities of what had transpired in their heart. And that's the power of the word. It reaches the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, royalty, and the commoner. It reminds me of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord after he saved, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, please note, a changed life results from a changed heart. The changed life is not the means to salvation. It's the result of salvation. That's why Jesus can say in Luke's gospel, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Or in Matthew's gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship. I, I, I never knew you through a second birth. And so we've got all these born-agains running around today. And they're going out and getting high on weekends on dope and alcohol until their brains are buzzed. They're sleeping with people in the churches. And they're saying, well, I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. I'm not talking about perfection here. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Don't ever think that you could never commit some sin. But God is speaking of a new direction, of a new practice. And he will say to those, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Now, please notice these people are changed. Verse 7, he issued the king a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. So the king's remorse leads him and his nobles to write a decree, a total fast, neither food nor water. In fact, it is so profound, he asked, even put it on the cattle. I mean, he just wanted the whole culture to, culture to shout, even the animals, we repent, Lord, we really mean it. Who knows, verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent, and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. 
The fear of judgment, by the way, is a mark of conversion. These Assyrians were a cruel and vicious people as we've studied. They were just violent beyond violent. You say, well, how do we know this is genuine? Maybe it's just superficial. I mean, think about King Ahab for a second. Remember Ahab, 1 Kings 21? He ripped off one of the men in his kingdom and stole his vineyard. And it came about when Ahab heard these words of warning from Elijah that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. You know, his wife was infuriated. Man, what are you doing, Ahab? What are you doing with that sackcloth on? Why are you in ashes? We may have ripped off, but look, we don't want everyone to know about it. And then we read, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Now people might read that and they say, God, what, what you doing, man? You going soft? Why don't you just zap him? God's not like some politician who makes a promise and then as soon as he's elected, he reneges on it. God never changes. Well, why does he give Ahab any slack? Well, understand there's a difference between temporal judgment and eternal judgment. And God saw how Ahab had humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes. And so God postponed the judgment that would come on Ahab. But sadly, as best we know, he died as a lost man and came under God's eternal wrath. We don't know that for sure, but there's no record that he was converted. But you see, what Ahab did is not all that different from what Jesus described in the parable of the sower. Do you remember in Luke 8, 13, he describes different responses to the word of God, the seed that is sown. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Ahab was like that. He took a step towards God. There are people like that. They come to the church. They get all excited, come down front. You can only go by what they say. I don't know. Salvation by grace. Yeah, I believe. They believe for a while, but it's here and not here. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And they fall away. They were never really, truly, genuinely saved. You say, well, how do we know these Ninevites that it was not just superficial? Because of the fruit of it. For decades, these were a changed people. And it's not until a hundred years later when the prophet Nahum comes along where the children had repented of their grandparents' repentance. And then God brought the judgment. We read in verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. By the way, it comes up on the Bible line on occasion because there's a number of places where it says God repented or God relented. 
And the question is, well, if God knows everything, how does God change his mind? Well, understand that in the truest sense, God does not change his mind. God was not caught by surprise, but very often in Scripture, the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropos, man, where God uses human terms to describe his divine character. So we say, well, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Or we say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. We know that God does not have a literal arm. We know that God does not have literal eyes because God is spirit. Until, of course, God the Son incarnated himself and one member of the God has literal eyes, but he's not restricted by those. He's still omnipresent and omniscient. And so God is using human terms to help us to understand his compassion towards these people. Now understand, when it says here that God relented, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's the word nakam. And it's a Hebrew word that describes relent with pain on the inside. You say God experienced pain on the inside? Yes, he did. How so? Paul unfolds it for us in the book of Romans, that God in his forbearance, dealing with Old Testament sins, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. God was waiting patiently. He was being forbearing. The new New American Standard speaks of God's merciful restraint. God temporarily held this judgment. God can't just indiscriminately forgive sin. Any more than a judge can say, I I forgive you, you're free to go for your murder. Justice must be satisfied. But justice and mercy and love met on a cross. And so God in his patience and his mercy was looking forward to that time when his son would come. Listen, when Adam sinned, God could have immediately destroyed the human race and by extension, you and me, because in Adam was the whole human race such that when Adam sinned, all sinned, Romans 5, 12. But God in his forbearance and his patience was looking towards the cross and what the Lord Jesus would accomplish for us. How are we going to apply this? Let me make a couple of applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this portion of Scripture that you can legislate morality, but it's better to have conversion. You can legislate morality, but it's far better to have conversion. Did you notice how conversion had changed the whole political environment? The violence did not get removed by passing some law, by more police, by arms. Police and arms cannot remove the violence. They can only keep it in check. Obviously, we make laws because of the depravity of man. Obviously, we need police. It's total upside-down, depraved thinking to think that we should defund the police to take away the very sword that is God's instrument to curb evil. We need a movement to refund the police. But people's hearts are not fundamentally changed by the passing of a law. People's lives are changed through the gospel, so we must always keep first things first. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1? He said, but we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. The law is good, Paul says, providing it is used lawfully. 
And so what's the fundamental purpose of the law? Well, notice, realizing the fact that law, and now he's describing man's law, and so when there's usually a back and forth, the NAS will put the word law in lowercase. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul is simply arguing that the very nature of law itself is designed for those whose natural tendency is to want to break it. That's why we have laws. If everyone obeyed the speed limit, there would be no need for speed limit laws with enforcement. If uh, people didn't rip off each other, we wouldn't have to have boundaries and fences to delineate our property lines. There would be no need for marriage laws if people didn't get divorced. There would be no need for race relation laws if people treated each other respectfully. No, the, the purpose of the law is for the lawless. I don't, need, I don't need a law that will say, Carl, don't murder your parents, because I loved my parents. I don't need a law that would say, don't engage in homosexual behavior, because I have a new nature that says that's reprehensible. The law is for the lawless. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a need for God's standards. Paul underscores it in the book of Romans for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. That is, you cannot be saved by the obedience to God's law because your sinful nature fails in keeping it. What it couldn't do, God did. How? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Why did he do it? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's what the new birth does. It changes everything. It gives a new direction. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away and everything has become new. And so while I am in favor of obviously upholding legal standards in our own state, in our own nation, in fact, every time we do that, we're just reminding people of God's standard and God's law as a school teacher to lead people to faith in Christ. That's a good thing. But do I think that's the solution? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Some law is not going to change anything. It will only curb evil. But to fundamentally change a person, they must be born from above. Let's keep first things first. And we have forgotten where we have come from as a nation. Much of what we've enjoyed in these United States of America is not because everyone was a born-again Christian, that all our founding fathers were passionately saved and walking with Christ, but a lot of them were. And the very documents on which this nation was founded was a reflection of biblical truth. But we've forgotten God. We, we think everything's fine. It's just as long as our economy is fine, we're, we're not bothered. And the American family is falling apart. Teenagers all the way to elderly people living in places like Sun City are living immorally. We're killing our offspring while yet in the womb. 
We're affirming things that God calls an abomination. We have people who are serving in the highest offices of the land who are not people of integrity because we've forgotten God. Secondly, do not pick on the loss of this world and miss your own need to repent. You see, the temptation when we see all the wicked ways of lost people is we say, yeah, God, those pagans, get them. And Jesus said, don't point fingers at men like Pilate who took innocent Galileans and then mixed their blood in a sacrifice. Because while Pilate is a sinner and while Putin is a sinner, unless we repent, we too will perish. Does God love Putin? Yes. Would God want President Putin to be saved? Yes. And we need to be careful too, though Putin threw out all the evangelical missionaries and there are no evangelical missionaries in Russia now. I hope you know that. Stopped over five years ago. All the visas were never renewed. But I remember doing a conference in Lviv with pastors from all over Ukraine and all over Russia. Men who passionately love Jesus. We need to pray for the church in both nations. We've got all the conscripts right now fighting, but when those Chetsnians come in in the next few days, it's going to be a different world. But we are to be compassionate. We are not to see the lost people of this world as the enemy. Someone cared enough about you to share Christ. You say, oh, I'm not as vicious as a Ninevite. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. We're all equally in need of a Savior. And if we have been saved, we have been commissioned to go and to share it. Now, Father, we love you and we thank you for incredible grace. You had no debts to pay except the wrath our sin deserves. And yet you reached down in human history by sending your son to die and bleed and to become the object of the wrath that we deserved. All we can do is say thank you and worship you. Now you have given us the privilege and the commission to take this message of forgiveness and new life to a lost world. So help us to do that. Help us never to think of ourselves as superior for the ground we know is level at the cross. Some of us can't remember the last time we even attempted to share the plan of salvation. Forgive us for our disobedience. Let today be the first day of the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Salvation is not only for those whom we deem as the most evil, rather it is for all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is too good for salvation and no one is too bad. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
If you'd like more information, give us a call at 877-787-7478. And if you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or use our Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy, available for smartphones and tablets. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And be sure to check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. Join us again when we return Monday to continue our series in Jonah and Search the Scriptures.